Hi, welcome to the Empty Hand Podcast. This is your host, Seiji Saiki. Wow, so the JKA is coming out with a series of kata DVDs. It's looking pretty cool. So check out the latest video on their YouTube channel and make sure to subscribe to their page. Also, if you like this podcast, give me a thumbs up and a subscription. So my guest today is Sensei Brad Jones. He's a sixth dan of the Japan Karate Association and author of Detour on the Path. I think those of you listening in are really going to enjoy this one. So without further ado, here it is. Well, Sensei Brad Jones, thank you for coming on the show. How are you doing? I'm okay. Uh, it's a pleasure to be able to do this and uh, to uh, make contact with others who have been isolated for so long. Uh, it's great to have a chat. Yeah, it's uh, no. I'm I'm actually pretty pumped to have you on there because you know we we have some pretty interesting conversations. The few times that we we get to meet up, how are things at the dojo right now? Well, we're surviving. Uh, I mean, like all of us, um, it's been a rough time. There's a, from what I understand, at least half of the dojos or schools of martial art of any sort are gone, uh, not to return. Uh, those oh. who are there still, and that's that's from uh, the OKF's uh, info, and it's also from a uh, fellow named Dayush, who owns Satori Uniforms, because oh. he's in contact with everyone. He oh makes uh, uniforms. He, when when uh, when everything came crashing down uh, and martial arts schools were closing down, he just switched from making karate gis and and that sort of equipment to making masks. So uh, a true entrepreneur there. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, and he got through that, and he's back uh, making uh, custom geese and so on for people around the world. So that's the true entrepreneurial spirit. So those of us in martial arts, uh, we do what we do, but if we run our own business and it's our livelihood, we've got to have that entre- entrepreneurial um, spirit as well. And that means either changing gears. And those who went to Zoom right away are still around for the most part. Those who took uh, the training drills that we have and uh, got a little inventive um, are still around. So as much as we're open, um, we're certainly not thriving. Um, in my case, I own the building. My, my property taxes are quite high, and uh, oh, I just yeah. want to survive this thing. You know, yeah, those who are sure. paying rent, the rent subsidies are out there. If the landlords are cooperating, and many are not, uh, and uh, I have my own feelings about that. Anyway, um, we're open, we're running class. Those who are here are very thankful. And something that, you know, those of us in, in our, especially training with the JK guys uh, and in that world, we're very caught up in um, technical points. But yeah. we need to realize, too, that the people that are coming to our dojo get more than just technical ability. I've heard over and over, because I throw my hands up sometime in frustration and say, you know, why am I doing this? How can I teach a martial art if I can't even touch somebody? But I've extended our meditation at the end of class to five minutes and the people that, and I've realized that there's so much stress and anxiety and fear out there that when people are coming to the dojo to have that five minutes of meditation, we do it in a circle, like a community, as opposed to the hierarchy mm-hmm. lining up in, in order of belt rank and so on. We do it together and um, just focus on breathing and listen to the bell when it rings. And so, and they're getting more out of that than anything else. And the physical training, of course, that's uh, very healthy for us. So there's more, we have more to offer than we think. And uh, yeah. we need to really uh, embrace that 
and embrace this the more the spiritual side of of what we do because that's what people are starving for right now yeah i so I, anyway uh, uh i've had to switch gears a little bit and, and focus more on that and less on getting it perfect uh, especially with kids uh, i got lots of emails from parents during the shutdown because we were shut from well march till the end of august and we had i started this well i had COVID. um as most people are aware that my wife and I both had COVID. Mm. Um, we were skiing in Austria in March and uh, 30 out of 50 of us contracted COVID. So oh. the same week they shut everything down that I had three new furnaces installed on the roof of the dojo for 40,000 bucks. <laughs> and I'm sick with COVID at home. Uh. Talk about your world caving in on you. <laughs> oh However, my God. Uh, it's getting better. And somebody said, you go on zoom. I said, what the hell is zoom? <laughs> <laughs> it was a quick study. <laughs> oh, my so, God. in no time, the dojo transformed from a dojo to a studio, and we had, you know, <laughs> lights, camera, action, and I'm teaching on Zoom for seven months. And then, okay, all right, we're back in the dojo. We can't touch. All right, so I got these six foot poles with a boxing glove on the end and pipe it, <laughs> trying to take each other's head off with it. And that you, you just got to get creative. <laughs> anyway. What's, uh, it's it kind of bothers me to what extent that martial arts is not treated with the same type of respect from a holistic sense. Well, I, that's partly our fault because we're not presenting it that way enough. Mm. What you are know, ways of at, what are ways of? Oh, sorry, because the Zoom chat call is a little bit choppy there. But uh, what are some examples of ways that we can present it in that manner? Well. Um, I've just started putting a few things on our Facebook page. So, well, like the other night I had everybody do a kata and I called mm. it COVID kata because you could see from above, we had the spots on the floor where people stand, everybody's moving the same direction and so on. And uh, what I want to do is uh, do a little video on meditation as well. And, and presenting this is one of the benefits that the true benefits that we really need right now is to calm our minds and uh, release some of the anxiety that is ever, even if you don't have it yourself, it's all around us. People are yeah. getting bitchy and miserable. In fact, I, it's, it's not me, but I, I lost my shit. Sorry for the expression. Yeah. On a guy at the liquor store a couple of weeks ago, because he mm -hmm. was ragging on some woman and insulting her in public. And I just let, I laid into him. I was yeah. yelling and screaming at the guy in the liquor store. I said, that's not me, but I'm being affected too. So I need it just as much as soon. I tell, I told my class, this is what I did. This is what's happened to me. And yeah. if it's happening to me, I know it's happening to everybody. So let's do, as a community, let's sit down. Let's do our meditation. Let's focus on breathing. Mm. Let's release some of this stress. And yeah. uh, and we can deal with this a little better. It's, uh, it's pretty ugly. It's pretty, This situation is bringing out the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah. But it I respect really your integrity with your students like that. And, and, and I have a lot of respect for that. Man, it, is this something that's... I'm pretty ignorant. I don't know what's going on outside of North America, but I mean, are the dojo situation similar? Let's in Europe, for example, you think, or, or. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a few people in uh, Germany that I contact uh, regularly and they've been shut down the whole time. I don't know if they actually reopened, um, but mm. uh, during the summer, I think they were still closed. And now that things are getting, um, the numbers are wor much worse than they are here. I'm talking several thousand a day uh, i'm sure they've cut back again mm -hmm. um, i'm just hoping this doesn't wipe out the whole martial arts thing altogether um, 
Do you think that I mean, so? I'm sure that, it will slowly come back. Yeah. Do you think that it would disappear yeah. completely so, though? Because like even though it were to completely be at bear again, I mean, if there's hope, surely that momentum could the phoenix could rise again, yeah. so to speak, right? Yeah, I, 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 we'll see it. We'll see a change for sure. We'll, we'll see some that won't bother returning. Yeah. And then we'll see those that bounce back. Uh, I think once a vaccine, well, actually, I've seen a shift in attitude since it was announced just the other day Mm -hmm. that a vaccine is on the horizon. So it's a glimmer of hope. We've had how many months of just bad news over and over and over? At least at least the election in the States is finished. (laughs) (laughs) But easier. (laughs) Uh, There's a lot of. I think there's like a huge, um, it's not resolved yet, right? I think Trump is appealing the whole situation, right? No, I know, but it, it will be. Not conceding. It will be. You know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I have faith in their, they're, they're going to stick to the constitution. <laughs> wow. But, I mean, going back to the dojos in Ontario, what was the percentage of them that, that shut down? I, I can't have a, I don't yeah. have an accurate number. I just For know sure. that from, uh, from talking that like half, had, I mean, we all shut down and some, yeah. Shut down, and to, like so those that are in, uh, say, a sports center or a YMCA, they yeah. didn't have an, a choice, so mm-hmm. they had to be shut down, and some probably still are. But mm-hmm. the ones that are privately owned, like um, like us, uh, the Jim Jennings up in Bradford, the, the others that rent their space, well, they, you know, they had that choice: do I open? Do I not? Mm-hmm. Um, depending where you are, of course. Um, OKF put out some good information on. Um, on how to safely open. And now they're still in Toronto and in Peel region and so on. They're, they're forced to close again. And then, yeah. you know, they, it, nobody is completely clear on all these things, uh, like how to reopen. I agree. I got, I've got to follow. Uh, <laughs> I agree. His two, his, his two sons train here. He's a cop with York region with the COVID task force. Yeah. And we sat down and looked at when they brought out that, um, was it the uh, modified stage two? Yeah. We read through the law together, and he even admits, says, you know, these laws are written to be vague because you have to interpret them. Oh, how great is that? So he says, oh, only nine or, yeah, like 10 people in a public gathering. He says, well, you're not a public gathering. No, this is a private club. So you don't fall under the private gathering. So a lot of people interpret that. that. There's no just saying, well, I can only attend in the class. So I tell him, well, you're not a public gathering. Uh, yeah. I, I fall back on the OKF saying, all right. If you've got whatever space, I can have 31. That's my yeah. maximum in the main dojo with spacing. Yeah. So that's what I fall under. And if somebody comes in, you just make sure you have an answer for them. That's all. So if, if a bylaw oh. guy comes in and says, hey, you've got 15 people on that floor. I said, well, here's the document that says that, 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 that. And then you have an answer. Mm, interesting. But if you're not sure, I have a binder sitting on the counter. We printed all the <laughs> stuff, highlighted it all. It's like, there it is right there. Now Get your off. ducks lined up. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's Do so funny. Uh, I remember when we were in stage two, technically martial art places were not allowed to open, but there was one commercial place that was open. So I'm like, oh, is there information that I don't know? So I called Ontario Public Health and they said, no, that's against the law. You got to call law enforcement. Like these people are not allowed to operate. So I'm like, I called my friend who's a cop and I said, okay, um, Apparently, these guys are open. Why, why are they open? Is there something that I'm missing? And he said, well, you have to talk to bylaw. 
So they're kind of bouncing off. They're saying bylaws responsible in enforcing it, not law enforcement. But then if you call Ottawa Public Health, you'll get a different answer than Ontario Public Health. And then they'll refer you yep. to another department that leads you to another department. And it's like, does anybody know what's going on right now? No. Well, that's the thing. If you're following the protocol, well, the OKF put out a document that we could have been open even in phase one. But that was really? a two-meter square. Yeah, listen to this, though. This There was a phase two, whatever it was. You needed a two-meter square for the person, then an empty two-meter square, then another so that the coaches could go between people. You had to let everybody had to leave the building. Then you had to disinfect, and then the next class would come in. So every single class, you had to disinfect the entire facility, top to bottom. So I'm thinking, screw that. I'll stick. Uh, I'll do my uh, my Hollywood version on Zoom and lights, camera, action. Here we go. <laughs> I had to stay away from the mic. I was laughing my ass off the whole time. That's, <laughs> that's hilarious. Oh, yeah. It was so unrealistic. Like oh, there's no possible God. way you could you could do that. Imagine trying that in the middle of February. Okay, everybody outside, <laughs> and you can't use your change rooms. So when you're a karate gi. Oh my God. So. Right now, it's it's manageable. You know, we we people come in, they wear a mask. We have uh, hand sanitizers at the door. We wear a mask until you're in the dojo. Then you can take it off. You yeah. practice. You put your mask on. Then you leave down the hallway. We can't use the change rooms, the water fountain, all that stuff. Uh, and yeah. at the end of the day, we get four volunteers. We got four mops. We start at one end. We mop the whole place with disinfectant. We wipe all the punching bags down, and you know, so on and so on. So that's incredible. It's, it's enough uh, for uh, for a second book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll get back to that. We'll get back to that. Yeah. But um, so when you, how do you break down uh, when you face a challenging obstacle? Like, what is your process? What are the phases that you? I don't you know go if through? it's a matter of breaking it down or a matter of attitude. Um, I mean, mm. challenges. I mean, that's life. Uh, if if. <laughs> It's all about a balance of stress. I remember years ago um, uh, learning that uh, the, the two most stre- stressful societies in the world, one was Japan because of <laughs> all the pressure. Oh, because I agree. The suicide, the suicide rate was one of the highest, and it was because oh. of pressure. I mean, the kids are For pressured sure. to go to school, to get a job. There's uh, The population high. The competition is just... Yeah. Outrageous, very high 100%. suicide rate. And the other one was the other one was Switzerland, of all places. Whoa, really? For the opposite reason, because there wasn't enough stress. Because you're born into a society where everybody has enough, everybody's well educated. There's no real um, sense to drive hard because you already have everything. And human beings need a certain level of stress. Isn't there like we, a professor we just, we that need, had a theory about that? I think it was like the flow. Possibly. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to bring it up. I <laughs> have to look it up. No, well, it, it was years ago that uh, I don't know even where I saw it. I just, I never remember details. I just remember the idea. And, and mm. the, what it boils down is that we need a balanced level of stress. So we're on the higher level of stress now. But during normal mm. times, I think we bring our own stress on for whatever reason. But so if you're faced with a challenge, you can either walk away from it. I mean, we know that from uh, teaching students, you know, there's a test coming up, they fail. Do they quit or they come back and try harder? Mm. I mean, I, I've been, and, and that's one of the, 
I truly believe one of the benefits as, as instructors that we have for the next generation is to educate them about how to cope with challenge. Because too much of society today, there's a whole movement of, oh, we don't keep score in this game. Or, oh, you got a medal just because you showed up. Because we don't want <laughs> one winner and everybody else to feel bad. <laughs> well, When did that change? Ended, yeah, I'm sure. I when did that happen to give medals? Kids. Oh, it happens all over the place. The, you get a participation ribbon. Nobody gets a medal for winning because everybody wins because you're here. Oh We've gotten goodness. to a point where we, we uh, reward mediocrity. Mm. So the dojo is a, the last refuge where you come in. If you didn't do a very good job, you fail. And you don't call it anything else. You didn't make it today. Sorry. You have parents over. You talk to them. Parents are there watching. They can see for themselves. And say, so in three months, come back, give it another shot, and we're going to help you in the meantime. You don't have to pay for it, but you weren't up to the level you need to be right now, but you will be in a few months if you put a little more effort in. And I've seen it over and over and over. Very few times. I, I, I can't even remember when, when somebody quit because they failed. Mm. But when they come back three months later and they do the test and they're successful, you can almost see their chest a little bit thicker. They yeah. stand a little taller. When they I walk agree. out, they are proud. And then they begin to understand the effect of hard work and reward. Mm. I, I, in our black belt exams, I have them write an essay as part of their process. And uh, the, the question for the essay is, how has your uh, karate training impacted your life? And mm. I'm hearing from young people. I'm talking 14 to 18-year-olds uh, when they talk about one guy in particular says, you know, after because uh, he didn't pass his black belt the first time, he had to come back and redo it. And after getting it, he went home and he said he had these little trophies and ribbons on his wall that were participation rewards. He took them all down, threw them in the garbage because he realized they were meaningless. Mm. And then he realized, I earned my black belt by hard work and this and that. This, I didn't work for it. I just showed up. Mm. And when they understand that at a young age, they are set for life. They are. They truly are. That's what the most important, one of the most important things we do. It's, I mean, the technical stuff, yes, of course it's important. That's what you're being graded on. But we instructors have got to, again, brace that part too. We have the spiritual side and then the, the feeding them constantly. I remember when I went to Japan and didn't pass a test, whatever it may be, I went back and uh, I said, well, I went for my test. I didn't make it. What do you think? Should I give up? Said, no. Well, what if I go again and I don't pass again? Should I, quit? Should I give up then? No. Well, when should I give up? Well, never. So reversing it and asking the question, should I stop? And they're the ones telling me, no, you shouldn't. Well, why not? Well, because they know in, in their hearts. And when you draw it out of them that way, it's, it's really, it's like a reverse education in a sense. Because they're the ones spewing the answers already. And they know damn well. As opposed to us lecturing them about them being a lazy ass and, and uh, you need to work harder. But when you reverse it a little bit, then you start to see results long-term. I think the, the biggest value proposition that a good dojo has is, is to instill that resiliency in its members. I think that's the number one value yeah. proposition over training champions or, or result-oriented things. I, th I think you put the finger on it perfectly. I think that's what a good martial art dojo offers, right? Yeah, it's... And, you know, our dojo, I've been running Next year, it'll be 45 years I've been running this dojo. And I have now a couple of third-generation members. Third-generation. Wow. It blows my mind. Like, honestly, 
I've got parents that are, they drop, they were here when they were kids yeah. and it's just, it's, I've lost count of times that's happened and mm-hmm. they're here. So obviously they learned something that they thought was valuable that they want their kids to learn. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and it's, and it's not a short term thing. It's, it's like gardening, you know, you, you plant your <laughs> seeds and you don't touch it all year round. You're going to have a full of freaking weeds and falling apart. If you tend it every single day, you're going to yeah. reap the rewards and have a good crop. And that's what we're doing day after day, after day, after day, year after year, decade after decade. Mm. It's a long-term approach for sure. It, it's funny so, how you realize the value in something when it's no longer there though. Yeah. Right? That's kind of, I mean, you got till it's gone. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> you know, you got it. You can't, you can't take your sensei for granted here, guys. I mean, seriously, I mean, you only really yeah. realize how much they, they give to you until, you know, they're no longer there. Right. And I, I saw this, this video that you posted. It was, a, it's a great, you're a pretty talented musician where you were recognizing some of the instructors that have taught you o- over yeah. the years. And, and what are this, this might be hard to come up with an answer, but I mean, what are some of the, the advice that you think you'd be receiving from some of those senseis if they were here during this situation, how would they handle it? Do you think? <laughs> oh yeah. Wow. Um, well, since they're all, it's very interesting. I, I actually use my former day, all my teachers, the, te- the influences that I've had in my life, they're all gone. They're, they passed away. Mm-hmm. And then it comes a realization in your life. I just turned 65 myself this year and I'm thinking, well, I guess we have to step into those shoes and be those leaders today mm. uh, for the ones that are coming up. But I've, even when we were on zoom, I had the camera set up uh, so that it was facing the Shinzen and I was facing away from it, of course, teaching the class, mm. but we always at the end of class would bow out, uh, turning toward the Shinzen and bowing and then toward the other. And I, I pointed out to them and said, you know, uh, when I bow in that direction, the, the, the doors of the Kamidana are open. And I explain when people join our dojo that the Kamidana at the front of the dojo um, has no religious connotation. Uh, oh, yeah, of course not. I have it there for the purpose. The purpose is the doors are open. And we're going to think of that as the connection between the world of the living and whatever you consider an afterworld. So when we bow in that direction, we're paying respect to the, the teachers who have given us what we have and uh, have passed on. Mm-hmm. So I brought that point up in one of the classes. I said, you know, the nice thing is that even though you're at home and you're on a camera, we're facing the shins and we're bowing and paying respect. And if they truly are watching us from there, they would be very, very proud of us that under mm-hmm. these conditions, we found a way to keep the dojo spirit alive. And mm-hmm. we're still thanking them, appreciating what they gave us. So it kept that, that little connection to the, the, the past. And that's the beauty in a traditional dojo. Uh, I mean, if you don't have the opportunity to have that sort of thing in your dojo, if you're in a school gym or something, it's sort of a symbolic thing. Mm-hmm. But that could be expressed a little more too. That uh, we we pay respects to our. Yeah, sorry, it, it got choppy there. Yeah. Oh man, I don't know where. <laughs> oh, that's here. so disappointing because the momentum yeah. is like going up, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But you were mentioning you, about paying respects to to your instructors, like with the Kamidana, right? And they would be right. really proud if to yeah. see that we're, you know, you guys are still keeping the spirit alive, right? Yeah. I mean, so I, what they would advise, I, I don't know. I, I'm sure they would be happy to see what we're doing. 
Uh, mm-hmm. they, I remember one day, years ago, um, I had Yamaguchi sense. He used to come over every year. He's uh, Toro Yamaguchi. Mm-hmm. Uh, he would come over and uh, he'd spend some time in Montreal with the dojin, and then he'd come down here for a few days and he'd, he'd stay with me. We had a good rapport. I went and lived at his house for a while when I was uh, one time. Mm-hmm. And uh, traditional guy, you know, it's all about straightforward, you know, you never know. So uh, he would, when I lived in my dojo over there, I, I used to run a kickboxing class. So one day I said, well, sensei, uh, you stay here, relax, have some to eat. I'm going to go teach my kickboxing class. So uh, anyway, I'm running my class. And I look over the side while well, he came in and he was watching. And I'm thinking <laughs> to myself, oh, shit. What's he going to think of this? <laughs> and, uh, anyway, I finished up and everyone went home and I went back next door and I said, oh, my sensei says, oh, very good class. Everybody working very hard. <laughs> okay, that's how he saw that. <laughs> it, uh, you know, we're doing something somewhat unorthodox from a karate standpoint or martial arts, but people were working hard and they were getting benefit and he thought he was good with that. Mm-hmm. All right, fair enough. He's not as uh, narrow-minded as I thought. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and that's another thing about what's happening right now: flexibility. Like I said, we've had to come up with some training drills. Where um, I might do a little video about this, where we've got these poles and boxing gloves, and you're coming at it like we—you're going to take your head off with this thing, but we're mm-hmm. distance. Because I keep saying to my students, the one of the benefits of training during COVID is that we're at a distance and there's no risk of injury. One of the problems of training in COVID is we're training at a distance and there's no risk of injury. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) And if there's no risk of injury, what are we doing? (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's, we dancing. I mean, you're going to do so much cut and so much punching in the air. So we had to come up with some way of adding some level of risk. Yeah. Okay. You got a boxing long a glove end of a stick, and uh, you don't move fast enough, you get smacked in the head. <laughs> so that's working. <laughs> should start as an equipment line. You should start a line of equipment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll, actually, I'll I'll do a little video. I'm just going to do one next week. I'll put it on the Facebook page, and you guys can share it. And maybe you'll come up with something like that. I'm, many people have already done something like that. Mm. And uh, seems to work. You know, we've, yeah. we've been experimenting with different ideas. But and I brought the puck. Uh, we're using oh, punching bags every day. Yes. Uh, oh, okay. So you got to hit some. You so do. I got six of them along the back, and then you line up. Okay, nail hard. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's when we eventually get back to one another, then we can. You know, but some things. Excuse me. Some things might stay like more bag training and more hit. Uh, that's, I've always said it's one of the, <clears throat> one of the downfalls of traditional karate training is we don't hit stuff enough. I, I agree. We don't learn to use, uh, we don't use, you know, we're, yeah, people are black belts in several dens and they've, their hands look like, uh, uh, well, I won't say they're just soft. No, but I, I, it's funny that you say that because I, I've been, you know, obviously prior to COVID, I was definitely using a lot more equipment than I am now, but that's a huge uh, something I noticed that was a big flaw. So I, I bought some Muay Thai pads and some punching oh, shields, good. and I'm just trying to yeah. really infuse that into regular training. Yeah, I agree, hundred percent. Like the their weapons are not formed properly. 
Like they're kicking right. with the wrong part of their foot. They're punching with, they're not even forming a proper fist, a lot of people. And when they hit the bag for the first time, they just, <laughs> it's like a car running yeah. into a post, My, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wow. Even just punching, Jodan punches. I, mean, I get kids, we don't do any Jodan punches. We do Jodan Taisho. If you're going to hit something hard, hit it with something soft. You know, the old rule. Hard surface, hit it with a soft surface. Soft 100%. surface, the body, hit it with a hard surface, you know. Um, but I come from a different background. I've, I've been around a lot of violence in my life. Yeah, that's that's the thing. You uh, only know that uh, unless you've done something like that, right? <laughs> you don't really realize the consequences and, unless you put your body at risk, right? Yeah. So when yeah. you... Yeah, so you smack tr- somebody in the head. Well, <laughs> you, sorry. <laughs> no, no. I was just gonna ask because, like, you you went to Japan and trained at the Hoitsukan Dojo, right? Which was Nakayama yes. Sensei's dojo. Um, yeah, yeah. What was that like? And w- when did you go? It was great. Uh, Nineteen seventy-eight, the first time. Okay. And uh, so, for my first uh, biggest influence, of course, was Sensei Soroka. Okay. Because uh, I actually started with uh, a Gojuru group. Um, in 1969 and the fellow who trained us here um, we didn't do any kata it was just fighting all the time Uh, I didn't even know (laughs) what the hell kata was I think I think we did one once but it wasn't a big deal now well that guy moved away and because I was still uh, pretty young I didn't have a driver's license I had to hitchhike down to a place in Richmond Hill where I trained a little bit and hitchhike back and then that place closed then I hitchhiked all the way down to uh, where York University is uh, twice a week to train at another place then finally, uh, one of Sensei Soroka's students opened a place uh, here in Newmarket, uh, run through the town rec department, and I s- started there. And then that's how I was. I got connected with Sensei Soroka later. Okay. And uh, so he uh, he saw me at a tournament. So Soroka Sensei saw me at a tournament. I was a brown belt, I think, and uh, saw me at a tournament. He came up and says, uh, "Come here." Says, "Here." He gave me a, a membership card, and he wrote on the back, "Paid in full, one year." He says, "Come to my dojo." Oh, wow. I said, oh, yeah, thank you. So it was like an invite. So I went and all the years I trained with him, he never charged me a penny. Uh, I helped him teach a little bit. And then over the years, uh, of course, my goal was always uh, from the time I started was to travel to Japan. So he, uh, he says, all right. When I told him I wanted to do that and I had set a time, he pulled out that Shinai. He beat the living crap out of me pretty much Ooh. every day. He really amped up the training, and um, he says, "Got to, it's different over there." <laughs> oh, so, so it's kind of like he prepping first, you, right? Yeah, yeah. He he was a pretty uh, tough teacher in his day, man. He, he had no problem using that shinai. Mm. I'd go home. I was had a girlfriend at the time, and I have these welts across the, my back of my leg or my back. So what the hell are you hanging out in S N M bar or what? Like what is that? <laughs> so, uh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god so, anyway he uh he uh gave me a letter of introduction so he first sent me to his teacher chitose sensei okay. so chitose is the fellow uh he was awarded his 10th down by uh the okinawan government and, okay uh, in fact there's a connection there's a connection with him with chitose to uh uh matsumura uh, from okinawa Okay. Uh, anyway, that I don't know enough about that. I just know there's a direct I, connection. Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of lineages everywhere. Oh yeah, it was a, yeah. S- a mm-hmm. small group. Um, 
and uh, so I lived at their house and with their family for about a month and a half and trained every day in their backyard. And it was very different because Soroka Sensei was influenced by a lot of the early JK instructors who had come through. And he started to take some, and they were successful in competition. Mm. So he took a lot of their ideas. Soroka was kind of a, uh, well, he was a pioneer in a way. He had his, his training, but he was, he was always taking from others. So his mm. style of karate was, for, I would call it Soroka karate in the end. So we would do the hand katas, and then we would do the, the chitoryu kata, but with longs and kutsudachi and kokutsudachi and so mm. on. So when I went to Japan the first time, we went to Chitofis, completely different. Because they use only sanshindachi and so on. There is no zenkutsu. Well, we were training every day. And the backyard was the dojo. And it was a dirt. And we swept it clean. So it was rough. <laughs> so after a couple of weeks of training over there, I couldn't even walk. It's like training on sandpaper. Oh, yeah. It's oh, my God. My feet were just Ugh. right gone. <laughs> and he had the iron gate and the little cement uh, milk bottle things you hold on to. And... Uh, uh, it was the old school and they used some weapons so it was pretty cool it was uh, I, I was really um, uh, taken back and he lived out in the countryside so there's rice fields out there his daughter mm. played the koto I'd be mm. training in the backyard and you hear the koto music coming from upstairs and rice fields and wow I'm living in this weird dream <laughs> yeah 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 because <laughs> the scenery must have been like beautiful right it's anything uh, yeah, you can imagine it was, right? in, it was down in Kyushu oh and, wow um, in Kyushu so in Kyushu, Kumamoto, um, I remember trying to buy a pair of uh, shoes because they're, they're a little smaller down there. So I remember uh, we, uh, I'd go with uh, his son and we'd go teaching at this, the, the schools in the area, the children's schools, and some had never even seen a foreigner. So I, they're all training and they're looking at me on the side like, oh, wow. And because I'm pretty tall, I'd have kids following me around town and it's just crazy. Uh, so uh, I wear a size 12. All right, so we're. I, I wanted to buy a pair of uh, like sandals. So uh, Chitose and his uh, wife, they're they're phoning different shoe stores to see if they have my size. <laughs> every oh my time God, they, yeah. I hear them talking. <laughs> they're talking way, and then I'd hear uh, uh, Juni the size, and then everybody just started laughing. Yeah, they didn't <laughs> believe you, right? Nobody had that size. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's funny. Oh my God. So. That was that was a great experience, and then I ended up traveling from there to uh, to Tokyo, and uh, I really didn't know where to go. So I ended up at the JK headquarters when it was at Ebisu, mm. and I walked in with my suitcases and said, uh, "Well, I'd like to train here." And they said, "Well, where are you staying?" I said, "I don't know." <laughs> so mm. I don't know who it was. One somebody who worked in the office marched me up the street and around the corner to the Hoitsugan Dojo. I says, "Okay, you stay here." So I, I got a room there, and I paid whatever the rent was. It wasn't much. And uh, the Hoitsugan, um, I had the room that's right next to the street. Um, uh, cockroaches all night. You know, it was pretty basic. It was a mattress on the floor with some mm -hmm. two by fours, and uh, and that was it. Uh, mm. But it was cheap. Uh, it wasn't heated, so that was a bit of an issue. But uh, <laughs> and the deal was, uh, you have to train every morning. And no girls allowed. Uh. <laughs> That's pretty much it. <laughs> what if girls wanted to train? <laughs> well, they can't go in your room. That's uh, it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was pretty, pretty simple. So we get up every morning, we go downstairs, and uh, there would be sometimes six people in class. 
um, a couple of people, a couple of Japanese people, a couple of foreigners, uh, one guy from Australia, an American guy, me. And then, so because of that, Nakayama would come down in the morning with his cardigan sweater or top. We'd have our class at 7.30 in the morning and we'd already be warmed up. So we just start right into it. And his classes were, um, were very technical. They weren't uh, grueling. The dojo is quite small. Mm. Um, I, I, Dimension-wise, I don't know exactly what it was, but it was quite small. And um, he would just, just m- small, small details. And he was a great teacher. And because many of us spoke English, he would often speak English. Oh. Uh, which was nice of him. Hmm. Um, yeah. Or at least half the time anyway, to make sure we understood. Uh, and his classes were wonderful. And... <clears throat> Not not grueling. Then, of course, we had the 1030 class down at the main dojo, and those were grueling classes. The old, that was an old bowling alley, and you're talking like 15 steps one way, 15 steps the other day, not five. And hmm. it was an hour class, and you had to have a break at the halfway point just to catch your breath. Hmm. It was just up and down, up and down, up and down, and then kumite, kumite, blah, 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 blah. Wow. It was just very, very aggressive. But um, it was funny because um, Kanazawa lived in the same building. Okay. So we'd see him every day. And he had already left the JK by that time. I remember mm. seeing him, and uh, I got to trade with him a few times, uh, more over here. But he looked like a movie star in a sense. He's always slim and good-looking. Yeah, he uh, was quite ripped and everything but, in the books. <laughs> oh, he was in amazing shape and a real a real gentleman, a, a real ambassador for, mm. uh, for karate that I found, a true gentleman. Uh, and Nakayama, they were still friends. So politically, there was the issue, but they were still friends. And Nakayama lived in the building, and so did Kanazawa uh, until he died. So that, I, I found that to be a great experience. I, though, I stayed there four months in total, and um, the training was amazing. So we'd be training most of the times, three times a day. So we'd do the Nakayama's class in the morning, the 10.30 class, and then we'd go for an evening class. Mm. Uh, of course, the instructor class was after the 10.30 class, so we had to kind of change and get the hell out of there. And uh, I, I remember... When I was first there, so we're talking 1978. Wow. Uh, I, I'm i sitting there one day, and they were doing a Dan grading. And I'm at the back of that dojo, and I'm watching the grading, and it's like, wow, these guys are good. And this was a Sandan grading. So they'd have these guys, one guy would stand up, and they'd do I don't know how many rounds, and they were hard. They'd fight each other. And then one of the junior instructors would stand up and walk around and face them. And just kicked the crap out of him. Oh. I remember one guy actually got knocked down. He didn't move. They just dragged him off to the side, left him there. Okay, next. And I'm watching this horrified, uh. thinking, I will never be ready for a test like that. Uh. And then um, there was this Mexican guy. I don't know what his name is or was, but he he was built like, uh, you know, the cables that hold up bridges. Just mm. sinewy and lean and like a, <laughs> like a sewer rat. He gets up there and he takes on whomever and he's doing fine. And then one of the junior instructors comes up, takes him on. And he did, he, he was pushing the instructor around. This guy was just, wow. I would oh, yeah. not want to face that guy. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know how long he was there. It was just, you know, this is what I witnessed. And uh, thinking, wow, this is really intense. And you got to think back then, all of the, like you got, Tanaka, Osaka, Osai, all the whole list goes, everyone that's in the best karate books, those were the instructors every day. Yeah. Oh. You walk in one day. So, so the, I get, when I get there, I'm, I get myself into the Hoitsagan. Uh, I start training there and I think, okay, it's time that I go and uh, 
train. Uh, oh, and then you go for coffee with some of the foreigners there, and they're all like, "Whoa, watch out for this guy!" And, Holy crap, this guy came in, he got knocked out, and this guy that was in the movie, some movie star, mm. uh, I remember, it was, uh, Flash Gordon. This is years ago. Oh, Flash the tall Gordon. blonde guy <laughs> came to train one day. <laughs> I think they knocked him out because he, you know, for whatever reason. But it was, it was a, it was a rough time. And they're saying, oh, watch out for your horror. Oh, don't piss that guy off, man. He'll kill you. Blah, blah, on and on. Yeah. And on. Everybody's shit scared of this guy. Yeah. So the day I decide, all right, well, it's time to go to the headquarters and pay my fee. And I, I, I watched for a few days. I'd see the class. It'd be, you know, 15, 20 people in the class. Good training. I think, all right, it's time. So I go in, pay my fee, do Nakayama's class. Then the next day, or next uh, walk down the street, mm-hmm. get uh, McGee on and come out. It's like two minutes before the class starts. I'm looking around. There's me and two other guys. That's it. Like, what's going on? And the door opens to the instructor room. Yahara walks in. Mm. Nobody told me. He taught on Wednesdays at 1030. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, I mean, nothing happened. But that's why nobody was there. Because <laughs> <laughs> a bit of a loose cannon. And all these uh. guys were in their pro back then, right? So, like, all these guys, you know... Um, anyway, all, all those instructors were, were in prime condition. They were like late thirties, mid forties, mm. uh, training every day and very good. And they didn't care if they knocked your ass through the wall. <laughs> yeah. You know, I get it. I got into a couple of real fights. I'm sure you had the same situation. You, it was a tough place to be, but even, mm. uh, I was sparring one day with this, uh, guy, I think he was, I don't know where he's from. Um, he was from a oh, French guy mm. and he was also a kickboxer. Anyway, we we pair up and we're sparring away, and he he was going hard, pop pop pop, and then he nailed me right in the solar plex, hard, mm-hmm. and I of course got winded, I couldn't breathe, and he gets me up against the wall, he hooks his hands behind my neck and starts laying the knees on me. Oh, like a, like a kickboxing up. Okay, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, and he's just nailed, and I can't even breathe. I'm saying, stop, stop, I can't breathe. He says, mm-hmm. well, we stop when Sensei says stop, and the instructor's just standing over there watching, like two foreigners kicking the crap out of each other. They don't care. Mm. Anyway, that ended get back in line. I kind of get my breath back after a while. And I think, all right, you son of a bitch. Yeah. I'll get yeah. you later. So it was, I don't know, a week, two weeks later. Um, it's, uh, we lined up again and on Hajime, I just kicked him right in the balls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I'm cheering. Screw you, I'm like... <laughs> no, yeah. just, you know, you want to be an asshole. She yeah. Goes around in circles. For sure. It's like, For sure. boom, down there. Yeah. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> give me hell for that. It's, I mean, thankfully, it's more civilized there today. Um, yeah, hundred percent. Worried about losing my teeth every go in there. It's the thing, but the world is different. Period. Oh yeah, for sure. Right? It, it was a different world then, completely different world there in the seventies, sixties, seventies, even uh, up to mid eighties. Uh, they talk about the blood and guts era in the United States with the martial arts, and that was around the same time period, like mid seventies mm-hmm. to mid eighties. Where um, you know the Bill Wallace's and the Chuck Norris's and all these people, it was a, people doing martial arts. You want to find that attitude now? Go to an MMA gym. That's where yes, you're going to find that. Exactly. Those tough guys, mm-hmm. right? It migrated so, to uh, that. Migrated yeah. to that. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. That's where you're going to find like those yeah. those type of people. And it it's interesting right. though. I I never really understood the the kind of sparring hierarchy in Japan where if you're a younger person facing like a, someone who's even a year older than you, like there's so many techniques that if you did against them, it would just set them off, completely set them off and they would go berserk yeah. and, and then they would retaliate 
10 times harder. And I, you know, I don't want to be negative about it, but I don't really think that's the best way to develop people. Oh, absolutely not. And you should complain about it because it isn't right. And then being a foreigner and you were a foreigner there too, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. being a foreigner there, you're damned if you do damned, if you don't, yes, you try and follow the rules, right. And they, they don't like that either. So you, well, I'll tell you a little story. Um, uh, my second time there, mm-hmm. uh, I, I worked a lot of hours to make enough money. When I'd go there, I didn't work. I, I, I didn't even have time to teach English. So I had to have enough money to live on for three, four months. Nice. nice. So I was working a lot over time and so on, and I uh, put some money away. But I wasn't training as much as I could have. And I was probably, you know, eight to ten pounds heavier than I should have been. Mm-hmm. And off I go. I, I'm over there. And I'm, I'm right back into the regular routine training. And I just cannot move fast enough. And these guys are coming in like bullets. Bah, mm-hmm. bah, bah. And, you know, the, mm-hmm. the control there isn't, uh, you, you don't want to break the person. But if you can cut their lip or you hit them and their eyes shut, that's control. Because mm-hmm. you go a little bit more and you, you smash their orbital socket or you knock yeah. their teeth right out. Yeah. So there's an acceptable level of you give somebody a crank in the nose that bleeds a bit. That's, that's, uh, that's acceptable, we'll say. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm blocking this and blocking that. And I think I had a broken toe at the time and my <sighs> nose was bumped up. And I, so after about a month and a half, I'm feeling really sorry for myself. So I went oh, to yeah. do some laundry one day and I'm sitting there writing a letter home at the same time. Cause back then we actually wrote letters. Oh yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> no e- yeah, for sure. Wow. I'm writing a letter home and I'm writing in this letter. <laughs> oh, what am I doing here? I'm over my head. That, mm. that, that. Well, I had a ticket that didn't go home for another like month and a half. So it's kind, yeah. of, kind of stuck. And that night, um, I had to go to the public bath. Mm. And that was the only place you get warm. I think it was November, December. So it was kind of cold. There's no heat. And then there was, yeah. So anyway, I go into the, the uh, public bath. And I put, uh, get some shampoo and I put it on the counter and so on. So I, I squirt some shampoo on my hand and I put my hands up. And I'm looking in the mirror. And I thought, uh. holy crap. I looked at my forearms and they're like black. Yeah, and I, oh you know, like you lay your arms up, ooh, ow, everything hurts because you yeah. just, you know, you've been pounded and you're blocking. And I'm thinking, holy crap! So I touched it like this, and then I hit it hard, and it was mm. the same sensation. I'm like, holy crap! They look at nerve damage going on here. So I had a moment, and excuse the language, but it was a fuck this moment. Yeah, <laughs> enough is enough. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. So. I had a complete mental switch. Mm. So I went into the dojo the next day with this is bullshit. And, and I just, a switch came on. I don't know how to describe it other than these guys would come flying in, trying to take me out. I stuck my fist out right in their face. Bam! I said, Ooh. stop trying to move and use what you got. I got mm. weight, I got reach and I'm going to catch your timing. So I started nailing guys left and right. They come in <laughs> and I use that kind of timing and they'd come smack yeah you want to break my ribs here take that yeah so i started doing that and then after a couple of weeks i'd walk by and somebody whispered to another guy so in a sense you had to become mean to survive and the the downside of that and you experience the same thing you you can only take uh that kind of treatment for so long and you either you flip a switch you internalize it and you have yeah, or you yeah. become mean. Yeah, but you, you you're not. You, it, it does something to you. Mm-hmm. And I found people who stayed there too long were mentally disturbed. <laughs> I don't know any yeah. other way to put it. Oh yeah, I had a friend it's there. A his point. name was 
a guy, his name was Rick. I forget his last name, but uh, he stayed there way too long. He's right five or six years. He had an album of photographs of his injuries mm-hmm. and he was proud of them. It was like trophies. He would get hit in the mouth and it would, his teeth would cut his lips. So he'd, he would talk between where it was ripped. He'd take mm-hmm. it and go, Hey, how are you doing? Like, Oh my God. Yeah. He, he was, yeah, he was right. Mm-hmm. He was just not right. So I found after coming back to after a few months of that and I come home, all my students would disappear. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Like John Jeff's the poor guy. I used to beat on him because, like, you're still in that environment. Like somebody's trying to take you out every second, yeah. and uh, and then you bring that home. Uh, and I had to realize, okay, I got to calm down. I got to you know rein it back a couple of notches because mm-hmm. you know, these people are here. Not everybody has it in them to go and uh, and do that sort of training and, mm-hmm. and accept that and, and challenge yourself to that level. Ninety percent, ninety five percent. And of people training, it's a recreational activity. Uh, it's for reasons other than what you and I might train for. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I had to have that real, okay, I just got to calm down here. I know I can do that, but I don't need to be doing that to my guys because mm-hmm. they're not going to appreciate that. You know, time That's and place, a, right? Uh, I'm really envious of uh, Brazilian ju- jiu-jitsu for that reason, though, because to, uh, to some extent, you could push each other, inspiring. And I mean, of course... If, if if someone wants to be an a-hole they can just mess up your joint like your shoulder or your elbow of course they can they can really injure you badly yes. but for the most part i mean it's relatively clean relatively clean right i mean of course there's a lot of injuries from jiu-jitsu but yeah. I, i feel like with karate what like a broken nose like split lip like a very like a massive gash on your face like there's no like the parameters are, are a lot narrower And I'm I'm very right. envious yeah. of like a grappling art for that reason, so that they can still push each other realistically, and if they're smart, like yeah. they they won't be injured per se. You know, right? It's kind and of it, unfortunate. Same same with judo. Same with yes. judo. They judo any grappling art. The way they actually practice in the dojo is exactly the way you'd use it on the street. Mm. We cannot do that. So. In a sense, another downfall of traditional karate training is too much theory. Everybody's got an opinion, but you mm. can't prove it. Mm. You know, I got a couple of guys who are all into the pressure points thing. You want to do this, do this. Well, you can't show me that because apparently it'll kill me. <laughs> yeah. You know, you can't take your finger and ram it behind the ear and hit that nerve that goes into your brain because <laughs> they say in this book, or it'll kill you. You know? <laughs> Or you judo match, you grab the guy, you lift them up, you throw them on the floor, boom, there, that works, right? Yeah, that's, exactly. Right, I agree to 100%. So um, that's why we got to hit stuff. We have to hit things. Because that's, that's the only way you, we yeah. can prove the techniques have, have validity. Exactly. That's exactly. One yeah. I agree 100%. And, and probably that's why a lot of those grappling arts are very popular in North America, is that it's they can see the yeah. the practical side of it right they can see that it's systematic yeah they can see the results yeah. whereas and even yeah even for law enforcement law enforcement does not like their officers uh, learning karate because mm. uh, we have, there's a fellow we have a jujitsu program here and the guy who runs it his name is tom sharkey he's mm-hmm. the head guy and he's quite legendary in the police departments around the toronto area mm. his story he goes back to he, He's Canadian. He went to Vietnam. He volunteered in the U.S., went to Vietnam, fought as a tunnel rat, honestly, who would volunteer for that. Oh, my God. Uh, crawling in black holes, guys, and killing them. 
And then he came back, became an ETF guy, SWAT team guy. And he was one of these kind, he'd go into these hostage situations unarmed and all that kind of stuff. So his jujitsu has a, has a a very practical approach. Mm. And uh, Mm. he brought up a point. He says, you know, nowadays cops are in a really bad situation for, for this reason. Cameras are everywhere. So they always see how it ends. But nobody's ever filming it how it begins. And mm-hmm. the cop has to win. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, back to my point. Sorry. Uh, yeah. if, if we as karate guys, we get attacked on the street, and then by the time you start beating on the guy, somebody's filming you. What do they see? Oh, he's a black belt. He's beating the crap out of this guy. Mm. He didn't see what happened first. Mm-hmm. So it's useful to have some grappling skills where you, if you can to manage somebody, uh, you know, if you're a bouncer in a hotel, you know, and the public doesn't want to see a cop taking their fist and smashing someone in the face. Exactly. That just looks ugly. It sounds oh, sure. ugly. Yeah, yeah. But putting an arm bar on somebody and making them scream. Oh, okay. He's got the pain compliance. He's okay, just playing with them. that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's no blood everywhere. You know, you just smack yeah. blood pouring. It. I mean, it's awful. And same with yeah. us. We're, we want to defend ourselves with our karate. We just make sure nobody's watching. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> when they see the photographs of the injuries later, we're going to be in yeah. big shit. <laughs> well, I, I mean, definitely, like on a one-to-one basis, I think jujitsu is is huge. I mean, one-on-one. But I, oh, I have yeah. my doubts though when there are like multiple people around though. Yeah, well, exactly. They, even they admit them themselves. Yeah, because you can't you know, be they, uh, like grappling one on one if they have a friend that can smack you from behind. Yeah. It's, it's oh yeah, stomping your face when you're down. Yeah, no, you got to be on your and that's so that's our realm. You know, you hit the deck, get on your feet. Right? No matter how, just yeah. get on your feet. It's and funny though. I bolt think... out of there yeah. or move and hit. Move. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry if I'm cutting you off there. The connection is. I guess it's not. No, 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 it's okay. But, but, uh, man, it's, how do I say this? I think police officers need to have at least a jujitsu background, like, like a once a week type training. Well, yeah, I, I think so. Um, actually here's an example. So one of my instructors here, sorry, I'm just going to take a little walk here. Yeah, go for Uh, it. One of my instructors, he uh, Wallace Gossett, I'm sure you've met him, the tall red Yes, guy. yes, yes. Yeah, he's telling me one day that uh, he was involved with, because he's he was on the attack team for yes. most of his career. And he says uh, he was part of the hiring there for a while. So this is how the times have changed. Uh, he says, we got all these recruits there. There's about 20 guys there, and, uh, and they've all qualified for the, the team. And if they survived the end of the training, he says, how many of you guys have actually been in a real fight? Out of about 20 guys, maybe two or three have put up their hand. Mm. Now, go back 25 years, everybody had been in a school brawl or uh, something. Mm-hmm. But today, today, that's not the case. Mm. Guys don't punch it out. He said, when I was 21, I was working as a bouncer in a bar. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were two places to drink around here. There's one here in Newmarket and one in Bradford, and that was it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Every friggin' weekend was like the Wild West. These fights had started. There was five of us working in this place because mm-hmm. it needed five. And um, <laughs> I, honest to God, 
it was great because uh, I was single and uh, I was the only sober guy at the end of the night, so that was kind of nice. To... <laughs> <laughs> a little off there. However, um, the fights would go on all the time, and I, I'm very happy to say that the entire time I worked uh, in that line of work, I never had to punch anybody up. Mm-hmm. I dodged lots of bullets, grabbed lots of guys, smacked them off the wall, mm-hmm. because you have the reflexes. And I was only 21. Mm-hmm. In an environment like that, and when I look around now at the average twenty-one-year-old boy, I don't see a lot of twenty-one-year-old men, and that I may get crucified over that statement. Oh uh, yeah, no, I understand but what you're saying. Yeah, again, it's our right. There's a, I mean, I, you know, I have a full-time job at that age. That's why I had to work there because I didn't make enough money. I was an apprentice electrician. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that's how I supplemented it. But that's a big responsibility. The Toronto Argonauts trained at um, St. Andrew's College back then, which is in Aurora. And these guys would come in there. And I think, you know, I watch these guys walking home. Oh, my God, I hope they don't start any problems. What am I going to do with him? One guy didn't have a neck, <laughs> just a head and shoulders. Like, yeah. What I do yeah. with him? Fortunately, they, I guess they were, you know, if they ever caused problems, they'd be uh, ousted off the team. Mm-hmm. You know, scary environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this, anyway, that that's just an opinion. You know. Yeah, of course, it's it's you know, being a police officer is extremely difficult, extremely oh, difficult job. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I wouldn't want to be in their shoes. And well, they and they have all this equipment. Yeah. So they got a taser, and they got this, and I got that, and they're trained more on their equipment and less yeah. on how to just kind of mix it up a little bit. I, I'm a huge advocate of like regular training for 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 police officers, like whether I, I, I think Brazilian Jiu Jitsu is probably the best, I think, because it, it's not necessarily about the skill part of it, but also maybe for the mental health part of it. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause like you were saying, you well, know, they, going back earlier. Yeah. It's the students and members, they benefit from the training, just having that opportunity to de-stress. And I think having like a once a week martial art program, it's kind of killing all the birds with one stone, right? You, you, you can help improve their mental health, but also they may feel more confident um, dealing with someone or a fight because they, they do it fairly regularly. Right. So that's just my opinion. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, they need to have the confidence in their abilities. That's true. And the only way to do that is through training and practice. And Mm -hmm. we know that. And uh, some choose to do it on their own and that's, that's all good. So, Mm -hmm. but yeah, (laughs) <laughs> marshmallow generation nowadays though eh? <laughs> oh it's it's different i mean there's some good things to do but there's it's something that stands out for me uh, because yeah. of what we do yeah right? definitely um i'm gonna do a bit of a 180 so if you don't mind yeah. so let's talk about your book uh, detour on the path um okay. what was the inspiration for you to write that Uh, it's a it's a dark time in my life, um, and uh, I, so to give a bit of background for those who don't know uh, about my story, um, the second time, so uh, the second time I went to Japan in the early '80s, I took a leave of absence from my job. Um, so the point was, I qualified to go to the World Championships in Egypt, and uh, figured I need to intensify my training. So. Um, the company I worked for, Javelin Aircraft at the time, actually gave me a leave of absence. Uh, my union e- even gave me a bursary to help support me. And off I went to train, uh, spent all my wad of money, and then came back. 
uh, went to the world championships, competed. I mean, we did okay. I think we placed about fifth in Team Kata, which, uh, and the team did reasonably well. And mm-hmm. uh, came back and then got laid off my job. Oh. So I had just gone and spent <laughs> three months uh, spending savings and then, uh, and then no money. So I was trying to run a dojo at the time, a uh, small dojo. And then um, there's a fellow that I knew for a long time who used to make his money by bringing hash oil into the country. Mm-hmm. And he lived in the tribal area uh, up uh, this, the corner of Pakistan and uh, Afghanistan and that area. It's known as the tribal area. He actually lived up in there and knew some of these people. And that's what he did. So I hit a point where I was uh, kind of desperate. And uh, long story short, he says, hey, you want to do a run for me? Make some money? Mm. And, you know, I'm thinking, oh, my God, I can't do that. And then yes came out of my mouth. And I was, uh, you know, younger, and I think I'll be quite an adventure. And how risky could it possibly be? And on and on and on. Mm. So I did say yes, and I uh, volunteered to be a mule. Mm. So um, I traveled to um, Pakistan, up in the border of Afghanistan. I witnessed the the war that was happening with uh, Russia and uh, the Afghan people at the time. Uh, I saw a lot, uh, and I, I explain it all in my book. Yes, yes, yeah. In in my book, I, I wrote tried to be as honest as possible as what I experienced through the eyes of someone born and raised here, mm-hmm. and uh, I didn't uh, exaggerate on anything. And uh, so I had to travel with this three kilos of hash oil in, uh, inside this hollowed out typewriter case through uh, Pakistan into India and then in Paris. Um, it was discovered, and I was arrested. I was imprisoned and put into Fleury-Mergis, a maximum security prison, and I spent uh, six months in there. And it was a horrible, horrible situation. Uh, I was almost killed a couple of times. Uh, I was on my own. I didn't speak French at the time. I'm pretty good at it now. <laughs> um, it was uh, it was an awful experience. So the, the purpose of writing the book was that I had to carry that experience with me for years not being able to talk about it. And uh, for over 20 years, so two things happened. When I finally got home, I got back on my feet. And even during that time, I had the realization that, uh, I, in fact, I'll, go, I'll skip back a little bit. When I got home and I went to visit Sensei Soroka, because mm-hmm. I had been gone for a year. Oh. I, had to, I was in prison for six oh. months. Then I had to wait six months for a trial and somehow survive. Oh. Um, and, Man. you know, moving from place to place, people putting me up on a couch, uh, having a couple of dollars sent over to support me so I could eat. Wow. So it was a pretty uh, horrible, uh, horrible time. So when I did get home and uh, one of the, you know, after seeing my parents and then I went to see Sensei Soroka and I sat in his office and he looked at me and says, so uh, where were you? So I told him the story and he listened. He didn't judge. Um, all he said was, you're very lucky. And mm. I just shook my head and said, what? What do you mean I'm lucky? He says, well, you have learned things that most people don't realize until they're ready to die. Mm. And the realization was that 
most of us are put on this planet for a purpose. And if you ignore that purpose, it's a wasted life. So my realization was that, yes, I am here for a purpose. I mean, the reason this dojo exists the way it does is that I'm going to create the kind of environment and facility that I wish I could have trained at when I was training. I want to have some of the best training we can have, some of the best uh, equipment we can use, and so on. And this dojo is an envy of many uh, many people who do what we do. Mm-hmm. And that's it was really get home and get on with it. And for over 20 years, I taught uh, self-defense courses in high schools, um, partly because of my experience and partly because I had a very good friend. I'll, I'll even call her a girlfriend. Uh, we were on and off many, many times. Um, and when we were not together one time, she uh, actually got abducted at knife point, forced oh, into a car. Jesus. Taken out of the country for dead in a snowbed. So not to go on too much about the story, but she managed to survive by crawling to a place and they found her, got her in the hospital and so on. And uh, after talking to her and so on, I, I was just enraged that I wanted to, and they actually found the guy, they caught the guy. Um, thank God for that. But uh, which left me with this feeling that I've done all this training and it's all been about me. And I was competing. I was right at that time in life where, Competing, even after being in jail, competing became less and less important mm-hmm. because I had had to fight for my life a couple of times. And I realized this training is is more than going into a competition and winning a medal. I mean, it's good. There's a time and place for it. It's an important thing, but it's not the be all and end all. Mm-hmm. So my focus had already shifted away from that. And how is that benefiting anyone else? So I took what I knew and then expanded on it. And I had this program that ran a two week program in high schools. And often I would go to uh, teach this course in a high school and we'd be, and I'd be saying things uh, because I've had a guy stand in front of me with a knife ready to kill me. I've mm-hmm. looked a person in the eyes in a prison situation. When you're here in the street and you're pissed off at somebody, you have an argument, you look at each other, I'm going to kill you. They don't mean they're going to kill you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're in a prison. For months, you're not, your name is taken away. Your dignity is taken away. You are an animal in a cage. Mm-hmm. And when you're looking at somebody else, you know what those eyes are saying. Because we didn't speak each other's language. Mm. And I know. We locked eyes. And I was also prepared to kill him. And I don't mm-hmm. like that feeling when I came back. And he says, uh, and he realized there was a way and so on. I never really told him until he said, hey, let's go for a drink again fill me in so we went for a drink and i told him the whole story he says you know i thought it was something like that because the the light in your eye is gone and i'll mm-hmm. never forget what he said there's a piece of you that's taken that can never come back and this mm-hmm. is what traumatic experiences do to our loss or or going to war or being in a prison situation it takes a piece of you you can never regain so with teaching these kids i wanted to teach the best so that what happened to my friend would not happen to them. So I wanted to instill in them this fighting spirit, no matter what. And it's not about techniques you learn. It's about mm-hmm. the mentality and the concept of a, of a skill that you can mm-hmm. perform under pressure. So I, I used yeah. a program called adrenal stress conditioning, mm-hmm. where it's scenario based. I'm in a full padded suit in the test and I'm going to rip your face off and you got to deal with it. And mm-hmm. it was very successful. And I would say to the teachers, listen, I want to, I want to share some of my story with these kids so they know where I'm coming from. And they like some of the things I say, like, how do you how do you know what it feels like to have somebody try and kill you? Well, I can't just come out and say that. 
Mm-hmm. They would always say to me, no, 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 don't talk about that. No, no, don't, don't say that. So I thought, okay, the only way uh, around <laughs> this is I have to write the story. I have to tell the story from mm-hmm. beginning to end. Give a context now, to it, yeah. Yeah, now it's in the mm-hmm. open. Now I can have a discussion about it. So when I when I had the book written and printed and designed and so on, I had them delivered. And I opened the first, I took another one out and I put that aside. I said, that's for me. The rest went off to uh, the distributor and it went off to, it was in chapters and so on. Yeah, I found, I saw it in so chapters. It. So I was reading, I read it, I read it. It was it's pretty crazy yeah. also like how you were teaching karate to people in the jail as well. It's pretty fascinating. I started, that's how I started to learn French. I, I'm going to start teaching these guys. So, um, I really recommend people to so, look into it. You can find it on Amazon. Give me something to do. You can still find it on chapters too, right? I have copies here. Well, yeah. if, maybe, but, um, you know, a bit of a side story. The, the chapter screwed over my distributor. He went broke. So anyway, I didn't make a penny on any of them. Oh, uh, but God. I have some. If somebody wants one, they can get it from me. Okay, buy it directly. <laughs> Don't buy it it's at chapters. Terrible. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Uh, it's always like that somehow. I'll bring some to the next camper. Definitely. Um, yeah. So when I when I went off uh, when I took my copy of the book, my uh, my wife Kelly and I we went on a canoe trip to Algonquin Park. Mm-hmm. One night we're sitting around the fire. I went in the tent, brought the book out, I put it in the fire, and I watched it burn. Oh, so the whole point of the, the this healing is like a a native approach to healing. I took it from my heart onto the paper, from the paper to the fire, the branch universe, and it was released. I didn't mm. have to carry it anymore. It's a way of becoming enlightened. Interesting. So, um, unfortunately, in our our modern society, uh, our our society doesn't have. Uh, a lot of mechanisms, different cultures do, but I would say Canadian culture or North American culture, we don't have a mechanism of healing like that, other than you know, to talk to a psychiatrist or something. But I looked at it, I'm going to tear it out of my soul, put it on paper, and I'm going to burn that and release it to the universe. So Interesting. That's why I wrote the book. It was a selfish reason to, to enlighten myself from carrying the load of that again anymore, and to help others and in the story the moral of the story is that um, like we're on we're here for a reason um learn from my mistakes um you know the story the, the end of the book is my conversation with sensei soroki and that's where it really the advice he gave me and what he said really uh, impacted me for the rest mm-hmm. of my life so that's, that's why a, it was written that's an Aside amazing that, I hope to make way. a movie of it one day well, it's a hell of a way to process yeah. and to heal from a situation. I never would have thought of doing something like that. And I, I think that's a brilliant way to to move on from it, right? And you you said it perfectly as well. Like maybe yeah. we don't funny, know that's... enough of those coping mechanisms, do we? No, no. It's a, the fellow I mentioned earlier, Wallace, uh, he, we'd become good friends. Um, he said something to me one day. He says, you know, I deal with this all the time people go to prison and so on it says many people will wallow in that their entire life and they become Mm -hmm. defined by it and i didn't want to fall into that trap it did a lot of damage i I, like years later i would still have nightmares Um, Mm -hmm. uh, a year after when i was with my family uh, and we were having christmas i actually had a flashback I, i don't know how to describe it other than i'm sitting at the table realizing wow 
what a what a contradiction to where I was a year ago. And I didn't see them anymore. I saw the prison room and the cell and the sounds. And that's where I was. Somebody shook me to say, hey, hey, okay. And I kind of came back. Like, it was the freakiest thing. That was the yeah. most extreme. And waking up speaking French. And, you know, so it took a long time to uh, get over it. And, and some things you never get back, like I say. Yeah. But that was a good healing. I, I'm okay with it. I'm okay to talk about it. Um, am I proud of it? No, not at all. But I'm not going to uh, limit myself because of it either. We all make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Did you learn from it? That's one thing. If you made my, make a mistake and you make my mistake again, now you're a fool. You're an idiot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if we never made mistakes, look at the people we do. Honestly, yeah. we, we, we fail people for a grading because they made a mistake. You come back and write it. Okay, now we move on. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a big mistake, but sometimes we make big mistakes. All right. Yeah. So learn from it, grow from it, move on, become a better person. Yeah. I, I don't like this whole idea in our society. I've actually been asked if I want to run for, uh, as an MP for Ooh. Newmarket Aurora. Ooh, uh, I'm being it. pressured to, to uh, <laughs> for the next federal election. Oh. Well, I, I said, well, you know, I've been in prison, right? <laughs> so I said, uh, how can I possibly, unless you walk into, unless you walk into a campaign with that right up front. Yeah. I've made mistakes and I've learned from it. And I come from small business. Like there could be some benefit from that, but I don't know. Many people are not ready for that. Yeah. I mean, that was 40 years ago, right? So, I mean, it's a lifetime ago. Yeah. People are different. You know, you're not the same person you were five years ago, never mind 40 years ago. Yeah. Right? So definitely yeah, in the we'll political see. realm, there's going to be a lot of low we'll blows. See. That's for sure. But I mean, I, I don't think that's like people who resort to those tactics. I don't have a lot of respect for in the first place anyway. So <laughs> no, it's not like a secret. It's like, here, hey, you want a copy of the book? Here you go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> so but, anyhow. Uh, I think that's uh, extremely relevant, though, uh, for today, because I'm sure that some people are feeling like, not that they're in a similar situation, but there's definitely a major obstacle to overcome here, right, with with the pandemic. And I just think that it's very, any ways to to learn to cope, any ways to learn to get over it, I think you cannot get enough of it, right? Well, here's a, I have something written at the back of my dojo, is about, four feet by four feet it's uh if you've ever been in my dojo you probably noticed it it's on the back wall and it's uh like a, a scene of sky with clouds in it and underneath um it's something i wrote when i was in prison it's a haiku type cloud our lives are sure to clear as a dawn breaks the endless night mm-hmm. so i've had to remind myself of that while i was in prison I came to the realization that one day I'm going to leave here. I actually feel sorry for these guards that this is their job and they're going to be here long after I'm gone. Mm. And that's what kept me going day after day because there were many, many suicides. People couldn't cope with the situation psychologically. They'd be killing themselves. The unfortunate thing, they kill themselves at night or slash the wrist and they'd scream all night long and they wouldn't open the door for them because they have a skeleton crew. So when you, Mm -hmm. you know, many nights you lay there listening to someone die. Like that takes a piece of you too, because you know what's going on and you know, they're not going to open the door. There was a guy across the other building, set himself on fire 
holy crap. And you have to listen to that. It's awful. Anyway, um, I've had to remind myself of that phrase. Is that, and I've told my students, I said, this is where this came from. And it's a dual purpose. Because right now I have this wonderful dojo. I'm married. I'm very happy. And we have to realize that's, that's also temporary. Because everything yeah. in life is temporary. Mm-hmm. So now that we're back in a bad time, we have to remind ourselves this is also temporary. And mm-hmm. the sun will shine again. There is no such thing as an endless night. The earth mm-hmm. will continue to turn, whether we're here or not. Mm-hmm. So that's how I coped with it. And that's what's, it's, it's reminded me again to go back to that and say, all right, you know, it may be a while, but we'll, we'll get out of this. And mm-hmm. uh, so that, anyway, if that resonates with anybody, I, they can use the same kind of idea or whatever it is you believe that, uh, to, get, to make you believe that this is a temporary situation. Mm-hmm. As is everything else. It, it just goes I to get show. too philosophical about it, but it's true. no, I love it. Thank you so much for even sharing these ideas. I, I really appreciate it. And I think a lot of people will really appreciate it as well. Um, it, I think it, it just goes to show how important it is for people to do something outside of work that they like karate or art or, or if they can make their job, yeah. their passion, that that's also, you know, it just goes to show how important that is. Yeah. And it, it Absolutely. Has, yeah, it has yeah, such so a, that was going to be easy. <laughs> yeah. It's sorry. The connection you can, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you good. No okay. Problem. Okay, cool. Yeah. Sorry. You're there. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Can you believe that uh, we're approaching the one hour and a half mark? <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> yeah. I should shut up for a while. <laughs> no. I, <laughs> but like, but when you get into these things, you know, <laughs> yeah. So I'll, oh, I'll, I'll ask you one more question. Um, okay. What direction would you like to see Karate Do in the future? Like, how would you? Yeah, I would. Uh, I was a competitor. I was a coach, a national coach, and of course supported sports karate. Mm-hmm. But after being through that whole thing and then standing back and saying, look what sport did to judo, look what sport did to taekwondo, and I don't want to see karate going down that same path mm-hmm. where we only concern ourselves with uh, the competitive aspects of, of our karate training. So on one hand, I'm kind of happy is the wrong word, but I'm okay with us being at the Olympics once. Mm-hmm. So we will be showcased. It'll popularize karate a little bit more to the general public. But then let's go back to what we really do. And the things we mentioned earlier, the, the true benefits of what we're doing, uh, the health mm-hmm. and fitness, the, the psychological and spiritual side. And let's not forget about those things and go back to training in a more realistic way mm-hmm. and, and tighten up our standards and, uh, pr- and be proud of black belts again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. uh, and get back to our roots in a sense. Like, let's study Bunkai deeper and really, really rediscover what it was meant for instead of guessing and coming out with outrageous explanations of, of certain things that are just, if people have come up with some of these examples, have never been in a fight in their life and have no idea how a real scrap goes. And I've got 
some ridiculous explanations of techniques. But then I've seen some that are, oh, that's good. Oh, I believe that. I, I, I remember one day a guy said, I forget who it was. Maybe it was George Dillman or someone like that. He says, so you're going to go to a seminar. They're going to teach you a technique. Now, if you're attacked on the way to your car after this class, would you use that technique? And you ask that question. And if the answer is no, then throw the garbage because it's not going to work. <laughs> if you didn't believe in it, then forget it. So, you know, we have to believe in what we're doing and have faith in what we're doing. And uh, anyway, but that's, you know, let's get back to doing good karate and not, not making up stuff and not causing so much on competition. Competition has its place, but mm-hmm. roughly 5% of any dojo is interested in competing. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah, it's a but very if you small want to, percentage. All right, yeah. but let's do it well. Very small, yeah. Mm. Yeah, and let's let's focus our attention on the people who really need us. Mm-hmm. You know, the ones that are uh, they're low self-esteem, the ones who are shy, the ones who need, you know, they're they're afraid. Let's help them deal with their fear. I always say in class, um, do what you fear the most, and you'll overcome fear, whatever that might be. Mm-hmm. And I'm. Mm-hmm. I'm always the first one to say, you know why I get on a stage and sing now? It's because I was afraid to. So I forced mm. my sister to do that. And two years from now, my plan is to sail across the Atlantic. Why? Because it scares me. So I want to continue to grow and face things that I fear and, and live a fearless life. <laughs> Maybe get there at the end of my life. Because mm-hmm. we're all afraid of something. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying anything ridiculous, but... Uh, people are afraid to do a test. Okay, it's all right to be afraid. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with that? And if you can deal with that, you can deal with something else that you're afraid of. Because if you always walk away from fear, you'll get nowhere in your life. You'll be trapped. Wow. You know trapped what? by your fear. <laughs> I-, I was going to ask you another question, but I-, I think that's an excellent way to wrap it up. <laughs> so thank you very much for coming on the show. <laughs> yeah. it- it's, a- it's a great way. It finishes on a high... <laughs> okay. 